Hello, and welcome to Plantiful Kitchen, the podcast where we talk about cooking delicious and healthy plant-based food. I'm Kevin. I'm a software engineer, cat dad, former opera singer, and terrible shuffleboard player. And I'm Courtney, a food blogger, vocal pedagogue, and recovering wannabe hipster. Let's Let's get get cooking. cooking! So, Kevin, what was the best thing you either made or ate this week? So, the best thing that I ate this week... It would be really funny if you were like, I made a rocking chair. (laughs) It turned out beautifully. (laughs) So, the favorite thing I made this week was some chocolate chip cookies. Mm. And actually, Will made them first, and then I made them again. You perfected them? No, I, I, <laughs> I, they were perfect the first time, but he didn't measure anything, so he couldn't quantify it. Okay. So I made them again, mm-hmm. and I measured things mm-hmm. and tried to quantify it. Okay. And um, I think we found, I think we found the results. So these cookies, it's a regular non-vegan chocolate chip cookie recipe, and instead of the butter, I just subbed. We subbed Miyoko's butter. And instead of the egg, we used just egg, Mm -hmm. one of the substitutes that we talked about last podcast for an egg substitute. And um, it was great. Really, really good. I don't know what the difference was between this and a vegan cookie recipe, but it, um, I don't know, it was just really, really delicious. And it tasted like a good old fashioned Toll House chocolate chip cookie that your mom would make when you were a kid. Wow. Yeah, the chocolate chip recipes that I've seen that are vegan are like the ovenly one. Have you seen that ovenly chocolate Mm-mm. chip cookie recipe? It's like fancy and it's got a bunch of coconut oil in it mm-hmm. and you've got to let it sit in the refrigerator overnight and it's really good but it's kind of a pain in the a butt. A lot of work. And it's definitely like a fancy chocolate chip cookie but this was sure. like a simple chocolate chip cookie that was really delicious. How was the dough? So when Will made it the first time, he put in an unknown quantity of just egg to substitute for the regular egg that it calls for. It calls it calls for two. Yeah, it calls for (laughs) (laughs) it calls for two um, eggs, and he put in some just egg, a, a couple squirts, and the dough was very dry. It was like super dry, but mm. we didn't know if that was the way it was supposed to be. But the cookie turned out fantastic. <clears throat> and then when I made it, I did three tablespoons of just egg per egg that it called for in the recipe. And it was cakey and fluffy, which was good, but not as good as the first time. So this time we did two tablespoons of just egg mm-hmm. per egg in the recipe. And we'll see how it how it turns out. I think it'll be perfect. There's some in the fridge right now, ready to be baked. Why didn't you bake any? We could be eating cookies right now. <laughs> I'm still full of Kevin. I'm still full of the pancakes that we just ate. I would find room for cookies. <laughs> Maybe after afterwards <laughs> and we can report back on Maybe them. Maybe at least a spoonful of dough. Yeah. Well, that sounds delicious. So, to summarize, use 2 tablespoons per egg whatever's called for in the recipe of just egg. I didn't realize you can use that for baking. Neither did I. But if you look on their website, they they market it as like it fries up like just like an egg, which it does. Mm -hmm. But you can also use it in any baked good where you would use an egg, a whole egg. Well, that sounds excellent. What was the best thing you made or ate this week? 
buffalo cauliflower wings. Oh. Yeah. That sounds delicious. Yeah. So anyway, I, I've had a lot that like if you make them at home, they don't turn out crispy at all, yeah. especially if you're not frying them. Um, so I tried putting them in this like flour soy milk batter and then tossing them in breadcrumbs that also had a bunch of seasonings and then air frying them. And they they're obviously not like the same kind of crispy that you would get from something that's deep fried, but it was equally crispy. Um, It's just not that like fatty, crispy, crispy, but the texture felt like it felt the same to chew it, which I think is important Mm. if you if you don't want to feel like you're missing out without, you know, making things oily or deep frying them. Um, So, yeah, I found that that worked really well. It did great in the air fryer. Uh, I don't know how it would turn out if you were baking it, but Hmm. but. If you have an air fryer. I might have to try to get into this air fryer thing. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. Now, so, wait, but the, the cauliflower inside for the wings, mm-hmm. I assume you just cut it up into smallish pieces. Yeah. And then did you boil it or cook it at all nope. beforehand? No. Nope. Was it tender on the inside yeah. or was it still crunchy? Mm-hmm. It was tender. It was tender. It wasn't mushy. Because I was tender. I've had cauliflower wings before. I think I've tried to make them before, but I didn't cook the cauliflower beforehand, but I did like pan fry them in like maybe an inch of oil in a Dutch oven. Mm -hmm. But I think maybe it was too hot or maybe that's not the way to do it because the outside cooked before the inside. So the inside was still like raw and the outside was, was, it wasn't good. Oh, it's hard. It's harder How long does yours go in the air fryer? Um, the air fryer has different settings, so I just picked one of the pre-programmed settings. I think it was the broccoli setting, actually, and that worked fine. I'll have to, d- I'll go back and see, like, what temperature and how long, but... But, like, 10 minutes, 5 minutes, uh, it was 15? probably, like, 10 to, 10 to 15, okay. something like so that. So long enough for the cauliflower to cook on the inside. Yeah, yep. The only thing about this system with like doing the the breadcrumbs is once you put the sauce on it it doesn't it doesn't stay quite as crispy yeah yeah so you'd want to serve it sauce on the side or something yeah for sure or like put it on and then serve it immediately yeah cool that sounds great so from the farmer's market what's at the farmer's market? well it is february which it is now. It is February, which means it's the exact same thing at the farmer's market as it was in January. And maybe December, too. <laughs> and maybe bit. December, Probably too. Probably March. <laughs> yeah. I think we'll be starting to get... The winter's been pretty mild, so maybe we'll get some early stuff in, like, end of March. That'd be nice. Or April. We'll see how it goes. I'm so excited for the springtime farmer's market. Yeah, me too. But... At the farmer's market, you can still get onions and shallots and garlic. Mm-hmm. And so those are the things that I want to feature okay. today. So onions and shallots and garlic. They go in everything. They go in everything. And I'm sure everyone is familiar with them uh, or has eaten them before. Uh-huh. Uh, 
I did a little research on onions and shallots and garlic. Okay. And they are all from the allium family. Okay. And that also includes chives, leeks, and shallots. And also decorative alliums. They have those big, giant purple flowers, purple like puffball flowers. Hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen those before. Uh, the don't, the, don't they grow on the ends of chives? They do, but the they're mu- a much bigger version. Oh. They're like eight inches in in diameter, Ooh. these giant ones. They're ornamental flowers. Anyway, you could eat those, but don't probably. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> yeah. So I did a little research on them and all of the allium family contain sulfur and sulfur is supposed to be good for you and according to this one web page that had links to scientific studies that i did not read that alliums um, (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna be full disclosure um they are antioxidant antiviral and antibacterial they also have been shown to prevent blood clots be anti-inflammatory immune immune boosting and potentially anti-aging. That's all I need to know. Uh, And so I also, let's see, onion garlics are also particularly rich in soluble fibers called fructans, which we talked about a little bit about Mm -hmm. fibers in um, sunchokes last episode, which help promote healthy gut bacteria. Yeah, probiotics or prebiotics. Right. And so that's one of the reasons why if you eat a lot of onions and shallots and garlic, it can help you maintain a healthy microbiome. Mm. I just read a thing on the internet this morning about how people who are friendly and out or perceived to be friendly and outgoing have more of a certain type of bacteria in their microbiome than really? other people. Yeah. So That's pretty cool. So besides putting them in everything, onions and garlic and shallots, which is what I do, can you think of some <laughs> uh, onion and shallot and garlic forward things which are delicious to eat? So I make all of my vinaigrettes and salad dressings at home, and I always put raw garlic in it every yeah, single time. Right. No matter what I'm... It really makes it like nice and spicy. It does, and it makes your greens pop, you mm-hmm. know? Um, salsas and other chutneys, mm-hmm. things like that. So I, I just wrote down some other things of like how to feature um, shallots and onions and uh, onion rings. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Yeah, really good. You could use that dredging method you were talking about yeah. and then air fry them. Yeah. French onion soup, which we'll talk about later. Uh, roasted onions. Sometimes I'll quarter an onion, put it on my sheet pan with my other vegetables when I'm roasting vegetables. Mm-hmm. Then you have a just like tender, caramelized, delicious onion. Roasted Yum. garlic is fantastic. Love roasted garlic. Mm-hmm. And uh, caramelized onions are truly delicious on everything. I make a caramelized onion tahini dip for like chips. That is really good. Oh my gosh. That sounds awesome. It's like caramelized onions and tahini and I can't, it's been a long time since I've made it, but those are the main two ingredients and Mm -hmm. it's so delicious. (sighs) That sounds really good. And I also like to caramelize onions and use them as the base for a pizza. Yeah, you do. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So this leads really nicely into um, 
my health segment about World Cancer Day. Mm. I'm not going to be talking about garlic and onions, but hey, it couldn't hurt to eat more of those because they're so delicious. Does cancer run in your family? Yes. It does? It does. What kind and of cancer? I have had cancer. I've had... What? I had, yeah, when I was a teenager, I had melanoma. Did you really? Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, Kevin! Yeah, yeah. You're a survivor! <laughs> Barely. It was... <laughs> It was actually in... So, melanoma runs in my family on both sides. Yeah. And I thought it was only something that, like, old people who'd been in the sun too much could get. But mm-hmm. I got it when I was 16, and it was in my hair on my head. <gasps> and um, thankfully, I was in, um, like, a master class with my voice studio at in high school. And my face started like it started bleeding and so there was blood dripping down the side of my face while I was singing which is very dramatic and when I got done people were like uh Kevin your face is bleeding um so they let me finish singing while I had a bleeding face so it must have been good (laughs) (laughs) that's just how talented you are yeah that's it and so we went to the doctor um, I think the next day, because my mom's a nurse, and she's like, "This not, this is not good. This should not be happening." So we went to the doctor, and um, they took it off and found out that it was stage one melanoma, so very, very early melanoma, and they were able to just cut it out and get good margins on all of the sides of it, mm-hmm. and um, I didn't have to have any chemo or any <gasps> radiation or anything like that. Oh my God! Thank God it started bleeding. Yeah. Right, because it could have... Melanoma was super dangerous. Yeah, my grandmother died from melanoma. Yeah. That's one of two cancers that runs in my family. My grandfather has had colon cancer, Mm. which we're going to talk about in a little bit. Spoiler. Uh, But yeah, my grandma died from ocular melanoma. Oh, wow. Yeah, she had to have her eye removed and... Then she, um, then unfortunately it spread, it metastasized to her liver Mm. and it was kind of over after that. But what other kind of cancer runs in your family? My grandfather died from lung cancer, but he was a smoker. Uh And I think, oh, my grandmother had breast cancer. She Mm. had to get a double mastectomy. And I think that might be all, but that's enough. So between the two of us, we've mentioned the top killer cancers oh and my uncle my grandfather's brother he died from prostate cancer oh did he oh wow yeah we've covered all of the top cancers then the most common cancers are breast lung and prostate luckily because there are so many cases of breast and prostate cancer the highest the ones with the highest mortality rates are lung and colorectal cancer right if if someone in your family has one of those then you should probably take just be a little more cautious um with certain lifestyle like risk factors so i want to talk about cruciferous vegetables um Cruciferous vegetables, it's like a family, the cabbage family of vegetables. So that includes, obviously, cabbages, Brussels sprouts, bok choy, arugula, kale, Swiss chard. So there was a study done showing that cruciferous compounds were found to be effective in halting the spread of lung cancer in vitro in a petri dish. So they did this really cool study where they like put um, 
they grew, they let lung cancer grow in a Petri dish um, to see how it would act in a Petri dish. And then in another one, they put a line down the center of a cruciferous compounds and then they wanted to see if the lung cancer on either side could bridge that gap and it couldn't it was like immobilized by these compounds and like i said before without it it spread throughout the whole petri dish that's fun it is just in vitro but it it's you know showing the power when there's that direct contact that these compounds have so another study showed that sulforaphane, which is a sulfur-rich compound found in cruciferous vegetables, was found to drastically reduce breast cancer stem cell size in vitro. Again, you know what sucks is (laughs) there's not a powerful lobby behind kale that will pay to fund studies like human trials, Uh, you know, showing the power of broccoli against breast cancer. Right. So we have to rely on foundations that can raise the funds to do that kind of stuff. Um, so it does seem like a lot of the studies are in vitro showing these like direct results. But I just wanted to say that's that's probably why there's no one funding right. kale studies. Right. Um, another study showed that a low-fat, high-fiber diet dramatically reduced colon cancer risk markers. This is in a study that... So apparently African-Americans have a... And by that, they just mean black people in America. They have dramatically higher colon cancer rates than people living in Africa. Hmm. So they wanted to see if, like, obviously it's probably not a, a DNA, a genetic thing, because if people have ancestry from Africa, then they would have similar genes. Um, so they wanted to see if it was the diet. So they took Africans, people living in Eastern Africa, who largely eat a low-fat, high-fiber diet, and they had them start eating a standard American diet that was high in fat, low in fiber. And then they had black people in the U.S. um, start eating a high-fiber, low-fat diet similar to what the um, African group is doing. And they saw that in the African group, risk markers went up super high for colon cancer risk. Like they, they took biopsies and were able to say see like proliferation of the lining of the colon. Those yeah. cells started proliferating and um, and inflammation went up dramatically. Whereas the group, the American group that was eating that high fiber diet for the study, their risk factors or their their markers, their risk markers went down dramatically. And this is after a two-week study. Wow. So it shows how powerful diet's impact is on colon and rectal cancer specifically. To sum this up, cruciferous veggies, they not only contain really powerful compounds like sulforaphane to fight different kinds of cancer, but they're also really high, they're a a high source of fiber, which can contribute to um, lowering your risk for colon cancer, eating a high fiber diet. A study at Stanford University they were able to show convincing evidence that malignant tumors can grow for up to one decade before 
the most sophisticated tests can detect them. Again, this is not including melanoma. That's scary. Yeah. So this means that I could have a developing tumor that I started growing when I was 25 and was, you know, making some not so healthy lifestyle choices that won't be detected until I'm 35. Um, Or what the choices I'm making now could lead to the discovery of a tumor when I'm 40 or when I'm 45 or when I'm 50. Um, So this should tell us that we don't need to be thinking about making healthy lifestyle choices now to prevent future disease. We need to be making healthy choices now to reverse any disease we might currently have and not know about. Yeah, or maybe our body is fighting off cancer and we don't know it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And now we so if we don't know it, we might as well we might as well be making healthy choices just in case it's right. there and right. we don't know Based about it. Based on what our understanding of healthy choices is now. Yeah. Yeah. So that's yeah, that's not to create fear, but hopefully it empowers people to know that like you do have you can make an impact on your health destiny. You know, you don't have to sit back and wait for certain genes to express themselves in such a way that you end up getting the same diseases of your parents. We can we can change that fate based on how we live and what we eat. Teach us something about cooking. What do you know? So yeah, last week we talked about egg substitutes. Mm-hmm, we did. But there was a big one that I didn't talk about, mm-hmm. which is aquafaba. Aquafaba. Yeah. I thought it should get its own segment. Um, so aquafaba. What is aquafaba? Well, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I was so ready to jump in. <laughs> For, uh, so aquafaba is pretty brilliant. It's, uh, first of all, just a marketing word. It's a fancy word for bean water. Aquafaba re- literally means bean water. It does. And so in this context, it's water from canned chickpeas. It's the water from chickpeas that they've been sitting in for a while. Mm-hmm. And um, you can do all sorts of amazing things with it. It is very starchy. And so while it doesn't have the proteins of eggs white, eggs white... <laughs> Wouldn't it be funny if it was eggs white? Eggs white. Uh, um, it does have the starch acts in a similar way. So you can pretty much one to one replace egg whites mm-hmm. for aquafaba if you're whipping them. And so I, I stole a lot of this from America's Test Kitchen, this great article and great um, demos that they did on aquafaba. So credit goes to to them yeah but it has to be chickpeas there's something about chickpeas that very is special and works in this special way and so you you basically can i know it sounds weird but you can put the water from a can of chickpeas into um, a mixer and whip it up and it whips up like egg whites and so you're saying to yourself, Kevin, that sounds terrible. Then it's going to taste like beans. <laughs> it doesn't really. And it's pretty easily overcome if you add a little bit of sugar to okay. it and a little flavoring, like a little vanilla extract mm-hmm. or almond extract. And that won't destroy 
Like the properties that mm -mm. make it whip up? Okay. So the next time you're cooking with chickpeas and you're going to just rinse and drain them, mm -hmm. uh, don't throw that Which liquid I do away. All the time. Yeah, don't yeah. throw that liquid away. You can save it mm -hmm. and use it later on to make aquafaba. Well, you, it is aquafaba, and you can use <laughs> you the aquafaba. You can use it. <laughs> you can use it, right. And so you can freeze it. Um, this article I read recommends freezing it in ice cube trays. Two tablespoons is equivalent to one egg white. So put it in an ice cube tray, freeze it. Then when you need it, you can defry it. De defry it. Defry it. Dethaw it. You can thaw it. Defrost is where I'm looking for. <laughs> <laughs> you can thaw mm. it. And... Um, use it for whatever you need to do without having to like open up a can of chickpeas when you might not want to. That's use a good idea. I always keep like a Tupperware in my fridge with aquafaba in it, and it goes bad within like four days. Yeah, and freeze then, it. As, yeah, they I did, should just they freeze it. They tested it frozen and not frozen, and it worked. And it the works same. exactly the same. Amazing. Yeah, and so when you are going to use it, um, after you pour it out of the can, mix it up because the starches can settle. And so you want to make sure to redistribute all of the starches to all of the liquid, which is pretty cool. And so they also recommend using um, cream of tartar. And so I didn't know what cream of tartar was. Cream of tartar is potassium bitartrate, also known as potassium hydrogen tartrate. You're a or, tartrate. <laughs> or tartaric acid. And cream of tartar is just another marketing name. And so it's an acidic powder. And when it's added to egg whites, for example, it prevents the proteins from bonding too tightly to each other and denatures them so they can create a foam that traps air bubbles. Uh, and it does a similar thing when you add it to aquafaba. And it helps the, the meringue hold its helps the foam hold its hold shape. Hold its shape. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So um, if you're using four ounces of aquafaba, you could add a quarter cup of sugar and a quarter teaspoon of cream of tartar. This is the ratio that they came up with. And it would make for perfect whipped egg white substitute. Delicious. Yeah. So you could use it for meringues. And you can put it in baked goods. Sometimes cakes have recipes for whipped egg whites in them. Mm -hmm. Pretty much anything. I don't. The only thing you wouldn't want to do is like make an egg white frittata out of it or something like oh, that, or yeah. an egg white omelet. It yeah, wouldn't yeah. work for that. But anything else you could use it for. I think. Can I challenge you to something? Yeah. I want you to make an angel food cake Ooh. with aquafaba. Ooh, that's a challenge. Yeah. Okay, I'll try it. Really? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. Okay. So now that we've we've talked about almost every use of eggs that you could use and the, what the vegan substitute is, so there's no excuse anymore. That's right. Eggs can't be the reason nope. you can't go vegan. No, nope. and that's the number one thing. People are like, but what about eggs? Oh, really? It's eggs? Yeah. I think it's cheese. Well, when people who like to bake talk oh. to me about vegan baking okay sure then they talk about eggs but you figured it out so this week for our um move to plant-based challenge kevin helps me out and suggested that we recommend that if you are the type of person who takes a protein powder you try out a vegan protein powder yeah seems like they've become readily available on the market. You can get them anywhere. I saw, I was in Walgreens the other day yeah. and there was one in Walgreens. And I know Costco sells some too, like pea protein, I think is the most popular one. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't take protein powder, you know, 
power these guns with the yeah. chickpeas. Um, do you take protein powder? Do you I, have one you would recommend? I do. I try to get jacked, bro. Uh, so it's working. <laughs> Let me tell you. I do take I'm protein powder, of you now. and the one the one that I have, I bought a. They only seem to come in ridiculously large yeah. sizes. So the one I'm still working through is Vagel One. They're vanilla flavor, mm-hmm. which is pretty good. It no protein powder is delicious. No, but this one is, tastes pretty good. I'm excited to try some different varieties of it. But mm-hmm. in terms of protein per gram, it, it's right up there with whey and every other type of protein that you could get. Hmm. It's just as protein dense as any other protein source. Did you know that whey is a byproduct of the dairy industry? Yeah, and it was from originally making cheese, right? Uh, I think so, yeah. And originally they were just throwing it away because it's get a waste it? product. Throwing and it then away? Were, <laughs> uh, I hate puns. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then they were like, hold up. This stuff is pretty high in protein. We could sell this. So they literally turned trash into a probably a multi-billion dollar industry. Plus, people I know who eat dairy often are also concerned about like pasture-raised, grass-fed, no hormones dairy. But the way that's in protein powder is the shittiest of the shitty dairy (laughs) that is exists. Hot dog powder. Yeah, (laughs) those. Those cows are, you can taste the suffering. <laughs> so that's that's the thing, too. Yeah. So try something else. Yeah. Just get get a um, an plant-based protein powder. Yeah. I do feel the need to say, though, that you can get plenty of protein on a vegan diet without oh, supplementing. Oh, for sure. For sure. But Just like, so everyone knows. Absolutely. We're not talking about you have to have protein powder to not be protein deficient. Right. But like if I want to if you want put to. on weight, I'm supposed to eat 190 grams of protein a day, which is a lot of protein. <laughs> and so I need to get it from somewhere. I mean, I could get that through other sources but it's just would be easier to do it through protein powder yeah that's fair so this week we veganized a new recipe very excited about it do you want to um tell everyone what it is yeah french onion soup soup. how did it go (laughs) i think i've had french onion soup once funny story i used to be gluten-free a long time ago and I was in college and I was traveling with friends and we stopped at like an Applebee's or a Red Robin or something. And I could not figure out what was gluten free on the menu. And I saw French onion soup and I was like, oh, it's soup with onions. That's fine. But then I started eating and was like, there's bread in my French <laughs> onion soup. So that was the only time I had French onion soup. So I don't know if it tasted like French onion soup is supposed to taste. But I will say I am now a fan of French onion soup, thanks to um, the the kind I came up with. So here's what I did. I made a beef broth out of Worcestershire sauce, uh-huh. the vegan, yep. a vegan brand. Yep. 
and uh, onion powder, garlic powder, miso paste, and nutritional yeast. So I made like a, a savory kind of beefy. I think Worcestershire sauce smells beefy, mm. but it doesn't really taste beefy. Interesting. But because it smells beefy, it kind of tricks your brain into thinking that it also tastes beefy. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I made a, a broth with that, and then I used a New York Times um, recipe kind of as the base of everything else. I sauteed four onions without oil for half an hour. Takes forever. Yeah. Mine mine was 25 minutes. How? But it worked. I mean, yeah. they basically dissolved. Right. You're, wanna, you're getting rid of the water in mm-hmm. them and you're also, the heat causes the sugars in there to caramelize. Yeah. It worked very well. It, I felt very kind of like French because it was so <laughs> technique driven. I felt very fancy mm. making this soup. So I sauteed them for a really long time and then I poured in port, mm-hmm. a cup it of port. Deglazed the pan. Deglazed the pan and I then let all of the moisture evaporate again. Right. So I had port flavored caramelized onions by the end of it. That, I mean, it's going <laughs> to taste like French onion soup by the time you do yeah. that. Anything else is just bonus. Right. So then I added my broth and I was supposed to use fresh thyme, but I didn't have any. So I used dried and it, it was fine. Um, and some bay leaves and let it simmer while I made my cheese. So my cheese recipe used a quarter cup of cashews, like a cup and a half of water, two tablespoons of tapioca starch, and then a little lemon and a little maple syrup and Mm -hmm. some salt. And then you just blend that up and then um, simmer it while you whisk it. And that tapioca starch works and reacts with the heat and starts to um, thicken it up and make it stretchy like a cheese. And the cheese was really good. And even without oil, it still tasted cheesy and decadent. And Mm. it was good. good. So then I toasted the French bread, the baguette. And then I put some of the cheese on the baguette and toasted it again, waiting it f- to, for it to brown, which never happened. Oh, no. It just kind of formed a crust <laughs> over the top. Yeah. So not very pretty, okay. but yeah, it was yeah. fine. And then you just put it in the broth and uh, there you go. French onion soup. Delicious. Done. That sounds good. Yeah, it was great. The one thing I would change is I would go ahead and buy a fancy bowl that I could stick under the broiler I think that would help and I would get the better than bouillon um, the beef no beef no beef yeah yeah Yeah. I Um, have some I could have given it to you well, I was planning on making it again oh Oh, so maybe I could borrow one that would be super you can just take it was it it the paste no you can just take it you don't have to borrow it you don't have to give it back yeah. You're such a good friend. <laughs> so yeah, I would do that because like I said, it didn't really taste beefy. That's okay. So I would want to fix that. Yeah. But that's how I did mine. Great. Cool. Yeah. What'd you do? Um, Your photos looked beautiful. Thanks. Mine was good. It wasn't beefy at all. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. It didn't, wasn't trying to be beefy. Did you not use the... I did not. No I followed oh, really? a, I followed another recipe from the New York Times. It was a miso French onion soup. Oh, so, um, okay. It was actually really, 
really simple. It was two and a half pounds of onions that I caramelized on the stove for How many onions did that half an end hour. up being? It was like six small onions that I got from the farmer's market. Okay. Did you Flashback use... to earlier. Yeah, right. Did you use yellow or white or... Yellow. Yellow. Okay, yeah. that's what I did too. Yeah. I, I like the sweet yellow onions. Yeah, me They're too. really good. So I caramelized those forever mm-hmm. and then let them cool off in the pan and then boiled some water. And then once the water was boiling, I put in a third of a cup of miso, which is a lot of miso, the onions, and thyme, uh-huh. fresh thyme, I found, which I also got at the farmer's market, uh-huh. and a shit ton of salt and pepper. Mm-hmm. And that was it. And then I had also bought some whole wheat sourdough. And so I toasted the whole wheat sourdough. And then I put that on top. And then on top of that, I put some chow slices. Mm-hmm. And Which kind did you get? White. <laughs> I, I don't know. They don't sell flavors. They sell colors. <laughs> I, I got don't know the what... red one. <laughs> but they don't call them like... There's of their equivalent like cheese types. I don't. I don't know. It was uh-huh. the, the white ones, <laughs> as opposed to the orange ones. Uh, white. And then I did bro. I did broil them under the broiler, and they melted oh, a little you did? bit. You just used a regular soup bowl under the broiler. Yeah, I was. I was a little scared of it though. <laughs> I put them on a cookie sheet, so uh-huh. if the pots exploded, <laughs> it le- they at least would have been caught. Yeah. There, but um, so I broiled them a little bit, and then it wasn't quite pretty enough. So I then blowtorched the top of them. I have a little kitchen blowtorch. I thought you were gonna yeah. blowtorch it. <laughs> I thought you. So would. that's what made it be nice and and brown, and it was it was really good. I love all things onion. So the onion flavor was really delicious, and then the bread is like crispy on the outside, but it's mm-hmm. gotten soggy a little bit from where it's been sitting in the soup, yeah. and then the melty cheese on top. Right. But yeah. it, this was really, really good. It tasted oniony. It wasn't trying to imitate uh, beef flavor, mm-hmm. which I'm sure the beef bouillon would have been really good in like a beef style French onion soup. Sometimes when you're veganizing something, it's good to try and find something else that's more like idiot, like more meant to be vegan. Yeah. Rather than trying to imitate the something else. I totally agree with you. Yeah, sometimes it's better to find a different flavor yeah. and just make that the new right. normal exactly. flavor. Yeah. yeah. So in this case, it worked out great. Yeah, cool. I yeah. like it. Delicious. So I feel like French onion soup would be one of those things that people feel like they would never be able to eat again when they go vegan because there is a lot of like non-vegan ingredients in it. But hey, we proved you wrong. Yeah. You can do it. Yeah, you can do it. <laughs> and it's still Also, do people good. our age eat French onion soup like at, at a no, restaurant? I don't think so. I think so. it's more of like it's something our parents did. Yeah. yeah. Join us next time as we talk about American Heart Month. Cruciferous cooking techniques. And we rehab another French thing. French, French toast. toast. Yay! Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Our Plantiful Kitchen. If you enjoyed this podcast, remember to subscribe and leave us a review and share this podcast with another plant loving or plant curious friend. Please and thank you. Now let's, let's eat, eat some, some plants! plants. A Secret Weapon Production.